This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Good morning, friends. If we haven't met before, my name is Adam. I'm lead pastor here at Mosaic. And uh, new view here. I like this. It's good. A lot of, lot of sun and shade. Grant's over here in shorts and shirt, like defying the seasons of life. I don't know. Is that like an act of rebellion? I don't know. Um, before we look at God's word together this morning, let me just uh, extend an invitation to any of our kids aged kindergarten through second grade. Uh, we'll provide some uh, age-appropriate teaching. They can meet. Uh, looks like Courtney's back there at the table. Uh, they'll be over just on the other side of the buildings in the courtyard outside. <clears throat> if you're new and your kids want to do that, they're welcome to. They're under no obligation, more than welcome uh, to stay in service with us, but we'd like to provide that. Uh, just a heads up, if you, ha- if you weren't with us last week, I kind of made a, a brief announcement about our plan uh, for, for gathering outdoors. Uh, here's the, the tentative plan, and I, and I realize we're we're pivoting into November now. I feel like growing up in Albuquerque, October was, or Halloween 31st was always, you know, the pivot date when it started getting real cold. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try to stay outside for, for two or three more Sundays, uh, which will put us right up to Thanksgiving. Uh, and we're, we're making arrangements and trying to build up our volunteer teams to getting us back indoors. And so the next few Sundays, we're going to try to be out here. So uh, bundle up. Uh, Grant might put a light jacket on by the end of the month. We'll see how that goes. Um, but we, we appreciate your patience with us as we, as we navigate life as a church uh, during a pandemic. So thanks for, for doing that with us. Hey, if you've, if you've got a Bible with you, um, I'll invite you now to open that to the New Testament. Uh, we are, we're looking at a, a passage um, in Matthew chapter 5. If you've, if you've been around our church, you'll know that we're slowly and methodically working through uh, what are commonly called the Beatitudes of Jesus, which are contained in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 5. We're looking at the fifth Beatitude um, today. Uh, before, before we look at it, little little connection here with life. Um, I know some of you, today is not Halloween, it's, it's Reformation Day, and, and you know, you're going to go home and read Martin Luther to your children later, and that's fine. We're going to tip our hat to Martin Luther at the end of the sermon, but for a minute, with, will you just bear with me? I've been, I've been a dad for, for 11 years now. I'd like to hit, feel like I'm hitting my stride on the holidays, and there's no better to, to feel the rhythm of, of being a good dad than, than pumpkin carving. Uh, we, we take pumpkin carving relatively seriously in our home. Uh, as our children are getting older, um, the technique and the strategies behind carving a good pumpkin are really coming into play. And, w- you know, we, we did that this weekend, and we've really, at least this year, it was just uh, Isabel's pumpkin. She's our youngest. She's only four, so her, her technique's still, you know, getting finessed by Dad a little bit. So we, we carved our pumpkin together, and She's really into Spider-Man right now, and so she, you know, I asked her, "What do you want your What do you want on your pumpkin?" She says, "Spider-Man." So I go online and I get you know these templates, right? You can get these templates now where you tape the the design you want on your pumpkin. For you old school parents, you don't even know about the level of pumpkin carving that's going on right now. But you get the template, you you tape it on the pumpkin, 
and you, you poke holes to kind of outline, you know, your design, and then you pull off the template, and you, and you carve it. Well, you know, Isabel's four at this point, and, and we're, we're now carving a, a pretty, um, you know, this is a high technical level carve, Spider-Man. Like, so she, she, went, she went high on us on this one. And, you know, I, I, I poked out the template and pulled off the paper and kind of showed her, like, you know, Spider-Man, and she just gave it this look like, that's going to turn into Spider-Man? Because it's just a bunch of holes on the pumpkin at this point, right? And she just, she was just disoriented. Like, Dad, you have no idea what you're doing. And then, you know, dad, dad gear kicked in, right? You start carving, you slicing it out, you know, it starts coming together. And, you know, by the time it's done and you light it up, and there it is, right? Spider-Man. She was, she was thoroughly impressed with my carving skills at that point. Um, I, I think, and I want to do this from time to time, I think some of you have been around Christianity so long uh, that when you, when you kind of, when you back up and you look at like, what are we doing here? It feels like my four-year-old felt when she looked at that uncarved, um, templated pumpkin kind of disorienting, right? Like, what, what is the big picture here? How is this panning out? And, and I kind of, the way I'm looking at the Beatitudes, um, I, I feel like this is Jesus, you know, I stretch analogies as far as I'll ever go, but this is Jesus, like, carving clarity into what he has come to do. Jesus came and he opened his earthly ministry with words like this. Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you've been around Christianity for very long, I don't think you really believe that. And, I, and I'm, you know, just being reoriented myself with, with what Jesus was saying is actually true. Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. And for too many of us who've been around Jesus and Christianity, um, I think we think that Jesus came to relieve us of like guilt over our sin so we could kind of just live our lives in a way that doesn't feel burdensome. And what I want to invite you to do is to look at these Beatitudes and much like my four-year-old daughter, to see Jesus Christ carving out clarity in what it means to belong to a kingdom that is at hand right now. Because what I think Jesus is doing in these opening verses of his Sermon on the Mount that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 is saying this is what it means to belong to the kingdom of God now. These are the people who are in my kingdom. Let me just read the one beatitude that we're going to focus in on today. It's contained in verse 7 of chapter 5. Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I want to believe what you say 
And I believe that the people that are hearing your word today, read and preached, uh, have similar desires. Uh, But Lord, unless you help us, uh, we cannot understand what you're saying. Unless you will give us insight uh, through illumination by your spirit, these will simply remain as religious platitudes that have really no bearing or significance on our life. And so, Lord, we, we, we're just asking you now collectively uh, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you're saying to us uh, in the Beatitudes. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. I mentioned a, a book I was reading a while back, um, and it was a biography of a man named Eugene Peterson. Uh, the name of the, the book is A Burning in My Bones. And Eugene Peterson, many of you are familiar with him, some of you aren't. Uh, he's, uh, he's a spiritual guru in so many ra- ways. He wrote a lot of books, and he was just a pastor for many years. Uh, he famously uh, translated uh, the Hebrew and Greek Bible into what is uh, called the Message Bible. So it's a, it's a paraphrase of the original languages, and he's very famous for that. And the biography is incredible, highly recommended. If you're looking for a good read, I'd I'd recommend it. Um, But in the in the opening um, section of a book, and and, uh, you know when you when you open a book, depending on what format, you usually just kind of breeze through, um, you know, the table of contents, the the prologue, that you know those kinds of things. But there's usually some book endorsements. Uh, you know, you get you get famous people that have written other books to say nice thing about your books. And when when I read a book, sometimes I'll I'll skim over those, or I'll see you know who wrote them, um, just to kind of see what type of people he asked to promote the book. But there was something striking about the book endorsements for this particular biography, uh, and and a couple things jump out at me. One was just the amount of them. Uh, there were just a lot of them. And then the the second thing that jumped out to me was just um, the the depth of the endorsements. You know, like when I read other endorsements, sometimes I'm like, did you even read the book? Like, you know, you can write a book endorsement for someone that you probably didn't even read the early copy they gave you. But you could tell, um, I think, that, that all the people that endorsed the book read the book. And not only did they read the book, that they also had really been impacted by this man either through his writings um, or through, you know, personal relationship with him. Let me give you an example. One, one of the endorsements uh, was from a woman named Cherith Fee Nordling, who's an associate professor at Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies, which I know nothing about. But uh, she wrote this about the book. She said, a a burning bones, that's the name of the book, uh, beautifully reminds us that we are shaped as our our expectations by the people and places we relationally inhabit as habitations of God's presence. And she said, uh, you know, the thing that jumped out in that endorsement was this idea that the thing that forms us, that shapes us, that, that makes us who we become is who we are in relationship, like how we inhabit our relationships. And, you know, over and over again in these endorsements, what was jumping out 
was this man inhabited relationships in ways that made an impact on people. And the way that this man was described um, was incredibly meaningful. Like he had deep impact on people. So the question I, I really want to present for you to consider, um, not that any of us have any aspirations or the reality that someone's going to write a bi biography about us, um, but, but if they were, how would people endorse you? How would people describe the kind of person that you are? Who are you in the relationships that you inhabit in your life? Would anyone ever describe you um, as this fifth beatitude? A person that is full of mercy. Would anyone ever describe you as someone who is overflowing with compassion and kindness. Because what Jesus seems to be suggesting is that those are the types of people that belong to his kingdom. The full of mercy kind of people. And uh, the other thing about this book, this biography, the opening quote of the book in chapter one is a quote from William Blake. Um, and it's, it's, it's a quote that's used in many different ways, in many different contexts. And the quote is this, uh, we all become what we behold. And I, I, wanna, I wanna put that forth this morning as we enter into this beatitude, um, because here's, here's what I believe is true that none of us can become something we've never experienced. That none of us can extend a mercy to other people that none of us have experienced on our own. So one of the questions that I, that I want to put up front right now in the sermon and then come back to and try to answer at the end is this. Is Jesus saying that only people who are full of mercy will receive mercy. And, and the way the, the Beatitudes framed is give mercy, get mercy, right? And I want to kind of, I kind of want to reverse engineer this because, and I'm, I might be tipping off my hat on the answer to the question of whether Jesus is saying that or not. I want us to look at these in reverse order. I want us to look at first what it looks like to, to get mercy and then I want us to look at what it looks like to give mercy. Or another way you could put it is I, w I want us to behold mercy, and then I, I want us to become mercy. So that, that's kind of how I want to orchestrate the, the passage for this morning, um, beholding mercy and then becoming mercy. So let's talk about mercy um, first. Um, everything about the Beatitudes is interrelated and connected. Um, you, you don't just arrive at the fifth beatitude. And so the, the, the place that the fifth beatitude is birthed out of is the fourth one, which was desire, right? For those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, mercy um, is not just an action. It's actually an emotion and a desire. So, so what Jesus seems to be saying is, out of a hunger and thirst for righteousness, out of this craving, out of this desire, 
is birth the heart that is full of mercy. And the, the other kind of unique and compelling thing about this particular beatitude is, is, is that it's the most measurable. Right? So as one commentator put it, he, he said, you know, mercy is birthed in the heart but shown in the hand. So mercy out of perhaps all eight of them is the, the one you can put metrics on, right? It's the one that, that there, there's optics to. You can, you can see what a heart filled with mercy looks like. So it's birthed out of this, this desire and this emotion inside of us out of which actions of mercy flow. So what is mercy? Like if, I, if, if we were to just put like a simple you know, definition on this particular word, it would be this. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. So, so mercy is this sense of seeing someone and not giving them what, what, what might, be, have, might have been merited by them, right? So the opposite of mercy would be what we would call justice. So justice is giving someone what they deserve. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And, you know, Jesus, you know, he was, he was an attractional figure, right? And, and what was it that was so attractional about Jesus? I would suggest it was his mercy. And you think about the types of people that were drawn to Jesus, who were, who were naturally attracted to this man. It was people who had nothing to offer the world. It was people who were desperately in need. It was people who were in social, financial, relational deficit, right? And they were drawn to this man and his teachings. There was, there was a magnetism to his mercy. Something compelled people like this to be near this man. Um, the, uh, there was a, there's a scene that's recorded in the New Testament. Uh, I don't have the reference here. But Jesus is gathered around a meal with those types of people, right? The sinful, scandalous, poor types of people. And there's some, some Pharisees who were the religious, uh, religious kind of elites of the day who were observing Jesus around these people. And the question was posed, like, why would a religious rabbi be, be around people like this? And Jesus' answer was this. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So from the outset, what Jesus, you know, he was establishing the tone that his ministry would be one that is filled with mercy. That his bent would be towards helping those who need help. Right? That, that, the, that the blood that was coursing through the veins of this man would be one that is for pouring out life and compassion and kindness and mercy to those who need it most. See, Here's the good news, and I, and I want to be just real upfront about this because you will never become something you don't behold. 
Like, you will never get to point two of this sermon. You will never be a merciful person if you don't understand the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here is the good news about Jesus, that he came to take what you deserve so that you could get what he deserves. He came to receive justice so that he could then freely distribute mercy to you. Um, what, what we see it, you know, tied up in what Christ came to do for his people is this. He came to do everything we could not do. We could not uphold the standards of justice. Right? The, the, the requisite for being right with the living God was perfection. It was, it was to uphold and upkeep living in perfect relationship with God, and none of us could do it. We just couldn't stack up. You know, as Romans chapter 3 says, we all fall short. Right? We could not measure up. And so Christ, in his great mercy and compassion, saw us in need and moved towards us in mercy. And he, and he comes in a way that doesn't just sweep justice under the rug, right? He comes and he upholds it. So what does he do in his, in his, in his life? He, he, he performs uh, the life of a perfect human. He never, he never falters. He, he never has, a, you know, these shortcomings in his life. He's never over the top with his anger, right? He never needs the confession of sin like we all so desperately needed this morning and were adequately led by the Smiths in. Like he didn't need that. He upheld all that justice required for humanity. And then in mercy and compassion, he willingly went to Calvary, climbed on a cross, and took everything that should have come from people who could not live up to that standard. So he willingly put aside what he should have received and took upon himself what we should have got. And so in the work of Christ, what you see on the cross is not just a man who's largely misunderstood, but what we see is, is the God-man full of mercy in our place, taking what should have come to us. And, and if that weren't enough, he, he, he's buried in silence and forgetfulness, right? All his friends forsake him. His closest disciples are denying him. He's buried, forgotten by the world. The father turns his face away from him. And it seems as though the work was insufficient, but the, the sufficiency of what Christ did bears its reality in the resurrection. And here's, here's the resurrection. This is the good news for anyone who would fall on, on the work of Christ today. This is the good news. That his mercy is endlessly available to you. That the work of Christ was received fully by God the Father. It lacked in nothing. It was entirely sufficient for you. So, so here's, you know, 
here, you know, as uh, we don't even know who to give credit to, but it shows up in, in hymns. Jesus Christ came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. So for anyone here, and, and I feel like, you know, there's, there's someone here who feels like God perhaps gave, gave you a loan that you're paying back. You know what a loan feels like, right? It's like you had sufficient funding to get you through the crisis you're having, but you have to pay it back. Jesus Christ didn't come to offer you a loan by which you now pay back through a meritorious, religious, spiritual type of life. Jesus Christ came and he paid the debt in full. He cleared the ledger. He, and he not only brought you to zero, right? He did, not, he did not only just take all the debt that your sinfulness, you know, mounted on your account, but then he gives you all his righteousness. He came to, to, to take what you deserve, death, and to give you what he deserves, a fully funded account with God. And none of it will ever change. You know, the account's closed. Right? God's not like pulling up your, your, your loan and re refinancing with you. See, see, friends, until you behold mercy like that, until you, until you are face-to-face -face with a God who is entirely thrilled with you, not because of anything you've done, but entirely because of what Christ has done for you, you'll never become a merciful person. You will always have this air of superiority that's around you. You will always have this sense of, I've got to prove myself, and it will bleed out in your relationships. But here's the good news about Christianity, and please behold it today, maybe for some of you for the first time. The good news about Christianity is that God has endlessly done everything that you could not do, and it will not be revoked. And you did nothing to earn it. And the mercy that is, that is that, that gospel, will then change you. It will make you a person who's full of mercy. So let's, let's talk about what becoming mercy looks like. Um, Jesus in the New Testament, he, he offers numerous examples, but he does two premier case studies um, in what mercy looks like, what it looks like and what it does not look like. So case study number one, it's recorded in Luke chapter 10 if you want to read it on your own, uh, commonly called the, the Good Samaritan, so the parable of the Good Samaritan. This shows us what it looks like to be a person full of mercy. And for sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase. I'd encourage you to read it on your own. But here's, here's the parable. An Israelite man is on the street uh, having seemingly been beaten um, by, by some, some robbers, uh, he's been left, and a number of people pass by him. A, pre a Levite priest passed by him. Uh, another man passed by him. But the third man that passes by him is a Samaritan. And what does this Samaritan do? Well, he sees the man in his need. He's compelled with compassion. He moves towards him in mercy, and he provides for him. Right? On the scene, he does like some triage work. He, he anoints him with oil. He bandages him. He kind of gets him in decent condition. And then he takes him to the inn. 
He puts him up for a couple days. He tells the innkeeper, hey, you know, start a tab. I'm gonna, I'll take care of all these expenses. And, and here's, you know, this is a parable. Jesus is just teaching us one main truth. But, but here's, here's in the parable, Jesus never says this. He never says uh, this guy kind of found out if he was worth being shown mercy, right? So mercy never asks, are you worthy of it? It just moves towards someone in compassion who has need. Right? And then the other thing it shows is that mercy always involves risk. So there's always, you know, this obviously took out of this man's travel time. Uh, it took money. Uh, it could have taken reputation. He doesn't know what kind of man he's helping. Maybe this man had some sort of, you know, uh, criminal record. Maybe he, he, he had some outstanding debts with these robbers that he wasn't willing, you know, like we don't know the fullness of it. And Jesus doesn't care to give us those details because what Jesus is trying to teach us is that mercy always involves risk. He said, it'll, it'll always put you out. If you're going to be a person full of mercy, you can expect this. It will be inconvenient to you. Mercy always moves you towards being sacrificial and risking of yourself. It's going to cost. Right, but the other, the other great premier case study that Jesus does is, a, is uh, I think it's contained in Matthew chapter 18. It's, it's another parable. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the essence of this teaching, uh, Jesus said that there was, there was a, a, a man who owed 10,000 talents uh, uh, in debt. He had, he had a, a large debt. And to put it in, in it, was, it, was a lot, it was multiple lifetimes of debt for a common servant. It was something he could never pay off, right? It was just it was an obscene amount of money. You know, whatever you make, you know, in a, in a lifetime, multiply that by 10. It was just an obscene amount of money that this man owed, and his debt was cleared, right? He says, hey, ledger cleared. You owe me nothing. Now, now, now you're free. You know, you're, you're no longer enslaved to, to the debt that you owed me. And what does this man go out and do? He goes out and he finds those who are indebted to him and he requires payment. And the way Jesus tells the parable, it's like it, uh, this man was cleared, you know, multiple lifetimes of salary. Um, and then he had somebody who owed like four months of salary and he wanted every penny of it. He was, you know, calculating like, I, you know, you will pay what you owe me, right? And so what Jesus is, you know, what he's teaching us um, is that mercy um, requires us forgiving debt in a way that, that, that might even hurt us, that might require us to absorb pain. Now, I give you those two examples, and they could kind of stay at the ethereal level, totally theoretical, sounds great, Adam. You know, I think here's what we do as Christians. We always want to apply these in really general ways, right? But Jesus, like in the Good Samaritan, he was answering a question. The question was this, who's my neighbor? And, you know, the answer to the parable was, well, the neighbor is the one who takes care of someone in need. And so when we generalize everything, when we say, yeah, let's be people full of mercy to everybody, really what we're saying is we want to be people full of mercy for nobody. And so, you know, I, I really, I really want to get street level with this and, and ask you, what is your heart full of? Is it full of mercy or is it full of justice? And, you know, that's the, that's the scales of balance for us, right? And so, like, when we, you know, when we 
are engaging in relationship with our children, are they experiencing you in any ways that are full of mercy? Right, like tonight, you know, all our kids are going to go get all the candy. And, you know, the dad tax, it's real. Like you got to, we got to tax our kids. My kids already know all licorice belongs to dad. It's just, it's not even, it's, I'm a benevolent dictator, really. I'm not even, I'm not even like a taxer. Like I, they just give me their licorice. I don't even have to ask anymore. Um, but like this, this bent, like are your kids always experiencing you like that? Like, is your heart ever even just bent towards kindness with them? Like, unmerited favor? Or is everything always a teachable moment with dad? Right? Like, is it always like we've got to teach them the right thing all the time? I'm not saying there's no teachable moments. I'm not saying there's no justice in parenting. I'm not saying don't take your kid's candy tonight. What, What I am saying is how are your children experiencing you? Would they ever describe your heart as a heart full of mercy? One that doesn't always give it what it deserves. Or, or maybe, maybe it's, you know, in the, in the marital octagon that is marriage. You know, like, how, how, how does your spouse experience you? Like, are you always just pursuing being right? Like, is the end game of every conflict just that you come out on top? Like, there's this this relentless need to be the one who wasn't in the wrong. You know, you know, I'm I'm into silly illustrations today. Like, what do you do? With the, you know, there's always one in the relationship who, who makes the, the sandwich and leaves the knife on the corner of the sink just in case you need, um, you know, that knife later in the day. Like, w- when, you, when you're not the spouse that does that, and you look at that knife, like, is it always, is it always an object lesson for, like, can't you just put the knife in the dishwasher? Like, does it always have to be the sense of justice? Or do you ever just you know, wipe the knife and put it away, right? Like, is your heart bent towards that? Or is it bent towards rightness all the time? Maybe, um, maybe it's, it's in the workplace, right? Like, you know, you've just got these coworkers that you, you're on these, you know, long email threads with, and you just, you have this air of superiority about you that, you know, it starts at the grammar police level, right? Like you just, you just can't even stomach another email that, you know, Jill writes or whatever, you know, like, like, you know, it just, it just starts stewing, but then it like, it elevates into like the substance level and you just, you just feel intellectually superior to, to, to all your coworkers really at the end of the day. And there's just this, this sense of, well, you're better than them. And your heart is just, even if it doesn't, it, it probably doesn't even come out because you, you kind of contain it, right? Like you've got a filter where you're not, you know, policing everybody on everything. But like in your heart, you are bent towards justice and not mercy. 
Um, last one, we'll, we'll just kind of use the church family example. You know, we, we belong to a spiritual family here, and one of the things I love, I love, love, love about our church family is we are, we're pretty broad in our diversity, right? Like we're, you know, sociologically broad, ethnically broad, you know, geographically, we've got people from all over the place, um, you know, all, all the demographics, like we're pretty broad, but we're also kind of broad theologically. And, 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 you know, I'm all about finding a church that kind of fits you theologically and, but like, you know, you show up at Bible study, you know, wh- whatever that looks like, and there's a group of people that you're, you know, you're trying to, to, to spiritually grow with, and you just, you're just peeved at someone who doesn't hold the same theological distinctives that you do. And, you know, the agenda for the night is not to connect in community or to grow closer to God or to even learn something new, what it, what it turns out to be is to prove someone wrong. And so, like, you want to, like, kind of just really wedge your theological savviness into the conversation because, well, you think you're right. You think you're right about everything. And what I think Jesus, you know, I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't care about theological distinctives or right doctrine. Please hear me on that. But what I am saying is Jesus is interested in your heart being full of mercy and not rightness. That Jesus wants you to be bent towards compassion towards people and not correcting people. That's what I think Jesus is after in this beatitude. That's what I think it looks like at a, at a really, really honed in street level. So, so here's, here's the question um, that, I, that I put up on the front end of the sermon, and I'll, I'll kind of close it now, is, is Jesus saying that only people who are full of mercy will get his mercy? And my answer is yes. <laughs> and it's a sticky thing because what it can sound like is, oh, I've got to be a certain way so that I can get a certain response from God. And what that sounds like to some of us is what we would coin legalism, right? Be a merciful person, get this from God. Um, here's, here's, uh, here's the tip of the hat to Martin Luther. So if you don't know why I'm talking about Martin Luther, today, October 31st, in 1517, however many years ago that was, a man named Martin Luther posted what, we, uh, what are commonly called the 95 Theses to the Church Door at Wittenberg, which was kind of a, a rebellious act against some of the teaching of the church. And that spurred on what we now commonly call the Protestant Reformation. So Protestant Reformed tradition, you know, parting ways from, from Roman Catholicism at that time, uh, kind of happened at that point in history. But uh, the very first thing of, of Luther's 95 statements, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't write it down, but basically he's saying, he says this, the first of the 95 says this, that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. In other words, he's saying repentance is not a one-time act. It's not something you did when you were 10 and you prayed a prayer, or you walked up an aisle, 
or you know whatever that looked like, or whenever you whenever you kind of first returned to God. Um, and and here's 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 kind of what I want to hone in on, is that the reason Jesus says only people who are full of mercy will get His mercy, is because what He's saying is you you have you have to come face to face with my mercy. Like you cannot, you know, strong arm your way into my kingdom. You can't think your way in. You can't behave your way in. You can't be the most compassionate. You can help all the homeless people in the world. You can do all the right things. You're not going to get in that way. But when you, when you behold how merciful I am, when you come face to face, when you encounter how free this offer of life is, you will give your life away. And so, yes, Jesus reverse engineers this and he says, you know, come and see how, how delicious my mercy is and then go and live like that. There's only one place in the New Testament where this exact word is used and it's used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this. Therefore, this is uh, God, had, uh, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's, here's what that verse is telling us. That there is only one true, lasting, endless source of mercy and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. Jesus Christ endlessly offers mercy to you. There is no exhausting his mercy. It is a bottomless pit that is available to anyone who knows their need for it. And the, and the gospel of this beatitude, the good news of this particular beatitude is Jesus Christ came and he died for merciless people. He died for people who think they're better than others. He died for people who think they're right all the time. He died for people who are unkind parents, who are self-righteous husbands, who are uh, unthoughtful neighbors, who are grumpy co-workers. All the things that we are any given day of any given week, Christ sufficiently paid for that. And it's free. There's nothing you can ever do. So the question that's on the table for you today to reflect and consider is, have you beheld this man? Have you seen his face of mercy towards you? Have you seen his endless smile on your life? And has that changed you? Does that make you want to be more like him? Do you feel liberated to be wrong? Do you feel compelled to be compassionate? Do you feel moved to be full of mercy? 
because that's what this beatitude's inviting you to be. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, I will be the first one in this park to admit that my heart all too often is filled with justice and not mercy. God, there is, a, there is an ego, self-promoting flesh, as we talked about earlier today, inside of me um, that is just not like you all the time. But I want to be more like you. And I believe that, that all those who are hearing this today have that same streak of desire in them. Lord, we're, we're all here collectively admitting we're, we're not showing up uh, to the party of the kingdom as naturally merciful people. Uh, but we are showing up uh, to the party of your kingdom saying, please make us more like your son. Help us to parent our kids in playful, kind, merciful ways. Help us to be spouses who are willing to be wrong who are willing to say sorry, who are willing to offer forgiveness even though we want them to earn it from us. Help us to be coworkers um, who are looking to build up and encourage and strengthen our teams and not, not just hold this sense of uh, superiority over others, Lord. And on and on the list goes, Lord. We, we want to take your word at face value. We want to believe that people who are filled with mercy will receive your mercy. So, Lord, it's our prayer this morning that you would help us to become that. We cannot do it without your help. I pray these things in, in Christ's name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 